BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 6 of The Seawolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 6 By the following morning the storm had blown itself quite out, and the ghost was rolling slightly on a calm sea without a breath of wind. Occasional light airs were felt, however, and Wolf Larsen patrolled the poop constantly, his eyes ever searching the sea to the northeastward, from which direction the great trade wind must blow. The men were all on deck, and busy preparing their various boats for the season's hunting. There are seven boats aboard, the captain's dinghy, and the six which the hunters will use. Three, a hunter, a boat puller, and a boat steerer, compose a boat's crew. On board the schooner, the boat-pullers and steerers are the crew. The hunters, too, are supposed to be in command of the watches, subject always to the orders of Wolf Larsen. All this and more I have learned. The ghost is considered the fastest schooner in both the San Francisco and Victoria fleets. In fact, she was once a private yacht, and was built for speed. Her lines and fittings though I know nothing about such things, speak for themselves. Johnson was telling me about her in a short chat I had with him during yesterday's second dog watch. He spoke enthusiastically, with the love for a fine craft such as some men feel for horses. He is greatly disgusted with the outlook, and I am given to understand that Wolf Larsen bears a very unsavory reputation among the sealing cap. It was the ghost herself that lured Johnson into signing for the voyage, but he is already beginning to repent. As he told me, the ghost is an eighty-ton schooner of a remarkably fine model. Her beam, or width, is twenty-three feet, and her length a little over ninety feet. A lead keel of fabulous but unknown weight makes her very stable, while she carries an immense spread of canvas. 
from the deck to the truck of the main topmast is something over a hundred feet while the foremast with its topmast is eight or ten feet shorter i am giving these details so that the size of this little floating world which holds twenty-two men may be appreciated it is a very little world a moat a speck and i marvel that men should dare to venture the sea on a contrivance so small and fragile wolf larsen has also a reputation for reckless carrying on of sail i overheard henderson and another of the hunters standish a californian talking about it two years ago he dismasted the ghost in a gale on bering sea whereupon the present masts were put in which was stronger and heavier in every way he is said to have remarked when he put them in that he preferred turning her over to losing the sticks. Every man aboard, with the exception of Johansson, who is rather overcome by his promotion, seems to have an excuse for having sailed on the ghost. Half the men forward are deep-water sailors, and their excuse is that they did not know anything about her or her captain and those who do know whisper that the hunters while excellent shots were so notorious for their quarrelsome and rascally proclivities that they could not sign on any decent schooner i have made the acquaintance of another one of the crew lewis he is called a rotund and jovial faced nova scotia irishman and a very sociable fellow prone to talk as long as he can find a listener in the afternoon, while the cook was below asleep and I was peeling the everlasting potatoes, Lewis dropped into the galley for a yarn. His excuse for being aboard was that he was drunk when he signed. He assured me again and again that it was the last thing in the world he would dream of doing in a sober moment. It seems that he has been seal hunting regularly each season for a dozen years and is accounted one of the two or three very best boat-steerers in both fleets. Ah, my boy, he shook his head ominously at me, tis the worst schooner you could have selected. Nor were you drunk at the time, as was I. Tis sealing is the sailor's paradise, on other ships than this. The mate was the first, but mark me words, there'll be more dead before the trip is done with hist now between you and myself and the stanchion there this wolf larsen is a regular devil and the ghost'll be a hell-ship like she has always been since he had hold of her don't i know don't i know don't i remember him in akodate two years gone when he had a row and shot four of his men wasn't I laying on the M.L. not three hundred yards away? And there was a man the same year he killed with a blow of his fist. Yes, sir, killed him dead all. His head must have smashed like an eggshell. And wasn't they at the governor of Kura Island? And the chief of police? Japanese gentlemen, sir. And didn't they come aboard the ghost as his guests, or bringing their wives along? We and pretty little bits of things like you see him painted on fans. And as he was getting under way, didn't the fond husbands get left astern like in their sampan, as it might be by accident? 
and wasn't it a week later that the poor little ladies was put ashore on the other side of the island with nothing before em but to walk home across the mountains on their teeny weeny little straw sandals which wouldn't hang together a mile don't i know tis the beast he is this wolf larsen the great big beast mentioned of in revelation and no good end will he ever come to but i've said nothing to you mind you i've whispered never a word for old fat lewis to live the voyage out if the last mother's son of yours go to the fishes wolf larsen he snorted a moment later listen to the word will you wolf tis what he is he's not black-hearted like some men tis no heart he has at all wolf just wolf tis what he is do you wonder he's well named but if he is so well known for what he is i queried how is it that he can get men to ship with him and how is it you can get men to do anything on god's earth and sea lewis demanded with celtic fire how do you find me aboard if twasn't that i was drunk as a pig when i put me name down there's them that can't sail with better men like the hunters and them that don't know like the poor devils of wooden jammers forward there but they'll come to it they'll come to it and be sorry the day they was born i could weep for the poor creatures did i but forget poor old fat lewis and the troubles before him but tis not a whisper i've dropped mind you not a whisper them hunters is the wicked boys he broke forth again for he suffered from a constitutional plethora of speech but wait till they get to cutting up of jinx and rolling round he's the boy to fix em tis him that'll put the fear of god in their rotten black hearts look at that hunter of mine horner jock horner they call him so quiet like and easy going so spoken as a girl till you think butter wouldn't melt in the mouth of him didn't he kill his boat steerer last year twas called a sad accident but i met the boat puller in yokohama and a straight fit was given me and there's smoke the black little devil didn't the russians have him for three years in the salt mines of siberia for portion and copper island which is a russian preserve shackled he was hand and foot with his mate and didn't they have words or a ruction of some kind what was the other fellow smoke sent up in the buckets to the top of the mine and a piece at a time he went up a leg to-day and to-morrow an arm and next day the head and so on but you can't mean it i cried out overcome with the horror of it mean what he demanded quick as a flash just nothing i've said deaf i am and dumb as you should be for the sake of your mother i never once have i opened me lips but to say fine things of them and him god curse his soul and may he rot in purgatory ten thousand years and then go down to the last and deepest hell of all johnson the man who had chafed me raw when i first came aboard seemed the least equivocal of the men forward or aft in fact there was nothing equivocal about him one was struck at once by his straightforwardness and manliness which in turn were tempered by a modesty which might be mistaken for timidity but timid he was not he seemed rather to have the courage of his convictions the certainty of his manhood 
It was this that made him protest, at the commencement of our acquaintance, against being called Janssen, and upon this, and him, Lewis passed judgment and prophecy. "'Tis a fine chap, that squarehead Johnson we've got forward with us,' he said. "'The best sailorman in a fox, sir. He's my boat-puller. But it's the trouble he'll come with Wolf Larsen as the sparks fly upward. It's meself that knows. I can see it brewing and coming up like a storm in the sky. I've talked to him like a brother, but it's little he sees in taking in his lights or flying false signals. He grumbles out when things don't go to suit him, and there'll be always some tell-tale carrying word of it to the wolf. The wolf is strong, and it's the way of a wolf to hate strength, and strength it is he'll see in Johnson. No knuckling under, and a yes, sir, thank you kindly, sir, for a curse or a blow. Oh, she's a-coming, she's a-coming, and God knows where I'll get another boat puller. What does the fool up and say when the old man calls him Janssen? But me name is Johnson, sir, and then spells it out letter for letter. You should have seen the old man's face. I thought he'd let drive at him on the spot. He didn't, but he will, and he'll break that squarehead's heart. Oh, it's little I know of the ways of men on the ships of the sea. Thomas Mugridge is becoming unendurable. I am compelled to mister him and to sir him with every speech. One reason for this is that Wolf Larsen seems to have taken a fancy to him. It is an unprecedented thing, I take it, for a captain to be chummy with the cook. But this is certainly what Wolf Larsen is doing. Two or three times he put his head into the galley and chaffed Mugridge good-naturedly, and once this afternoon he stood by the break of the poop and chatted with him for fully fifteen minutes. When it was over and Mugridge was back in the galley, he became greasily radiant and went about his work humming coster songs in a nerve-wracking and discordant falsetto. I always get along with the officers, he remarked to me in a confidential tone. Oh, I know the why. I do to make myself appreciated. There was my last skipper. Why, I thought nothing of stopping down in the cabin for a little chat and a friendly glass. Mugridge, says he to me. Mugridge, says he, you have missed your vocation. And how's that, says I. You should have been born a gentleman, and never had to work for your living. God strike me dead, ump, if that ain't what he says, and may sit in there in his own cabin, jolly-like and comfortable, smoking his cigars and drinking his rum. This jitter-chatter drove me to distraction. I never heard a voice I hated so. His oily, insinuating tones, his greasy smile, and his monstrous self-conceit grated on my nerves till sometimes I was all in a tremble. Positively, he was the most disgusting and loathsome person I have ever met. The filth of his cooking was indescribable, and as he cooked everything that was eaten aboard, I was compelled to select what I ate with great circumspection, choosing from the least dirty of his concoctions. My hands bothered me a great deal, unused as they were to work. The nails were discolored and black, 
while the skin was already grained with dirt which even a scrubbing brush could not remove. Then blisters came, in a painful and never-ending procession, and I had a great burn on my forearm acquired by losing my balance in a roll of the ship and pitching against the galley stove. Nor was my knee any better. The swelling had not gone down, and the cap was still up on edge. Hobbling about on it from morning till night was not helping it any. What I needed was rest, if it were ever to get well. Rest? I never before knew the meaning of the word. I had been resting all my life and did not know it. But now could I sit still for one half hour and do nothing, not even think, it would be the most pleasurable thing in the world. But it is a revelation, on the other hand. I shall be able to appreciate the lives of the working people hereafter. I did not dream that work was so terrible a thing. From half-past five in the morning till ten at night, I am everybody's slave, with not one moment to myself except such as I can steal near the end of the second dog-watch. Let me pause for a minute to look out over the sea sparkling in the sun, or to gaze at a sailor going aloft to the gaff's topsails, or running out to the bowsprit, and I am sure to hear the hated voice, "'Here, you ump! No soldering! I got me peepers on you!' There are signs of rampant bad temper in the steerage, and the gossip is going around that Smoke and Henderson have had a fight. Henderson seems the best of the hunters, a slow-going fellow, and hard to rouse. But roused he must have been, for Smoke had a bruised and discolored eye, and looked particularly vicious when he came into the cabin for supper. A cruel thing happened just before supper, indicative of the callousness and brutishness of these men. There is one green hand in the crew, Harrison by name, a clumsy-looking country boy, mastered, I imagine, by the spirit of adventure, and making his first voyage. In the light, baffling airs, the schooner had been tacking about a great deal, at which times the sails pass from one side to the other, and a man is sent aloft to shift over the foregaff topsail. In some way, when Harrison was aloft, the sheet jammed in the block through which it runs at the end of the gaff. As I understood it, there were two ways of getting it cleared first by lowering the foresail, which was comparatively easy and without danger, and second by climbing out the peak halyards to the end of the gaff itself, an exceedingly hazardous performance. Johansen called out to Harrison to go out the halyards. It was patent to everybody that the boy was afraid. And well he might be, eighty feet above the deck, to trust himself on those thin and jerking ropes. Had there been a steady breeze, it would not have been so bad, but the ghost was rolling emptily in a long sea, and with each roll the canvas flapped and boomed and the halyards slacked and jerked taut. They were capable of snapping a man off like a fly from a whiplash. Harrison heard the order, and understood what was demanded of him, but hesitated. It was probably the first time he had been aloft in his life. Johansen, who had caught the contagion of Wolf Larsen's masterfulness, burst out with a volley of abuse and curses. "'That'll do, Johansen,' Wolf Larsen said brusquely. 
I'll have you know that I do the swearing on this ship. If I need your assistance, I'll call you in. Yes, sir, the mate acknowledged submissively. In the meantime, Harrison had started out on the halyards. I was looking up from the galley door, and I could see him trembling, as if with ague, in every limb. He proceeded very slowly and cautiously, an inch at a time. Outlined against the clear blue of the sky, he had the appearance of an enormous spider crawling along the tracery of its web. It was a slight uphill climb, for the foresail peaked high, and the halyards, running through various blocks on the gaff and mast, gave him separate holds for hands and feet. But the trouble lay in that the wind was not strong enough nor steady enough to keep the sail full. When he was halfway out, the ghost took a long roll to windward and back again into the hollow between two seas. Harrison ceased his progress and held on tightly. Eighty feet beneath, I could see the agonized strain of his muscles as he gripped for very life. The sail emptied and the gaff swung amidships. The halyards slackened, and though it all happened very quickly, I could see them sag beneath the weight of his body. Then the gag swung to the side with an abrupt swiftness, the great sail boomed like a cannon, and the three rows of reef points slatted against the canvas like a volley of rifles. Harrison, clinging on, made the giddy rush through the air. This rush ceased abruptly. The halyards became instantly taut. It was the snap of the whip. His clutch was broken. One hand was torn loose from its hold. The other lingered desperately for a moment and followed. His body pitched out and down, but in some way he managed to save himself with his legs. He was hanging by them, head downward. A quick effort brought his hands up to the halyards again, but he was a long time regaining his former position, where he hung a pitiable object. I'll bet he has no appetite for supper. I heard Wolf Larsen's voice, which came to me from around the corner of the galley. Stand from under! You, Johansson, watch out! Here she comes! In truth, Harrison was very sick, as a person is seasick, and for a long time he clung to his precarious perch without attempting to move. Johansson, however, continued violently to urge him on to the completion of his task. It is a shame. I heard Johnson growling in painfully slow and correct English. He was standing by the main rigging, a few feet away from me. The boy is willing enough. He will learn if he has a chance. But this is... He paused a while, for the word murder was his final judgment. Hist, will you? Lewis whispered to him. For the love of your mother, hold your mouth. But Johnson, looking on, still continued his grumbling. Look here, the hunter Standish spoke to Wolf Larsen. That's my boat puller, and I don't want to lose him. That's all right, Standish, was the reply. He's your boat puller when you've got him in the boat, but he's my sailor when I have him aboard, and I'll do what I damn well please with him. But that's no reason— Standish began in a torrent of speech. That'll do. Easy as she goes, Wolf Larsen counseled back. I've told you what's what, and let it stop at that. 
The man's mine, and I'll make soup of him and eat it if I want to. There was an angry gleam in the hunter's eye, but he turned on his heel and entered the steerage companionway, where he remained looking upward. All hands were on deck now, and all eyes were aloft where a human life was at grapples with death. The callousness of these men, to whom industrial organization gave control of the lives of other men, was appalling. I, who had lived out the whirl of the world, had never dreamed that its work was carried on in such fashion. Life had always seemed a peculiarly sacred thing, but here it counted for nothing. It was a cipher in the arithmetic of commerce. I must say, however, that the sailors themselves were sympathetic, as instance the case of Johnson. But the masters, the hunters and the captain, were heartlessly indifferent. Even the protest of Standish arose out of the fact that he did not wish to lose his boat-puller. Had it been some other hunter's boat-puller, he, like them, would have been no more than amused. But to return to Harrison. It took Joe Hansen, insulting and reviling the poor wretch, fully ten minutes to get him started again. A little later he made the end of the gaff, where, astride the spar itself, he had a better chance of holding on. He cleared the sheet and was free to return, slightly downhill now, along the halyards to the mast. But he had lost his nerve. Unsafe as was his present position, he was loath to forsake it for the more unsafe position on the halyards. He looked along the airy path he must traverse, and then down to the deck. His eyes were wide and staring, and he was trembling violently. I had never seen fear so strongly stamped upon a human face. Johansen called vainly for him to come down. At any moment he was liable to be snapped off the gaff, but he was helpless with fright. Wolf Larsen, walking up and down with smoke and in conversation, took no more notice of him, though he cried sharply once to the man at the wheel, "'You're off course, my man. Be careful, unless you're looking for trouble.' "'Aye, aye, sir.' The helmsman responded, putting a couple of spokes down. He had been guilty of running the ghost several points off her course in order that what little wind there was should fill the foresail and hold it steady. He had striven to help the unfortunate Harrison at the risk of incurring Wolf Larsen's anger. The time went by, and the suspense to me was terrible. Thomas Mugridge, on the other hand, considered it a laughable affair, and was continually bobbing his head out the galley door to make jocose remarks. How I hated him! And how my hatred for him grew and grew during that fearful time, to cyclopean dimensions! For the first time in my life, I experienced the desire to murder. Saw red, as some of our picturesque writers phrase it. Life in general might still be sacred, but life in the particular case of Thomas Mugridge had become very profane indeed. I was frightened when I became conscious that I was seeing red, and the thought flashed through my mind, was I too becoming tainted by the brutality of my environment? I, who even in the most flagrant crimes had denied the justice and righteousness of capital punishment? Fully half an hour went by. And then I saw Johnson and Lewis in some sort of altercation. 
It ended with Johnson flinging off Lewis's detaining arm and starting forward. He crossed the deck, sprang into the fore-rigging, and began to climb. But the quick eye of Wolf Larsen caught him. "'Here! What are you up to?' he cried. Johnson's ascent was arrested. He looked his captain in the eyes and replied slowly, "'I am going to get that boy down.' "'You'll get down out of that rigging and damn lively about it. Do you hear? Get down!' Johnson hesitated, but the long years of obedience to the masters of ships overpowered him, and he dropped sullenly to the deck and went on forward. At half after five I went below to set the cabin table. But I hardly knew what I did, for my eyes and my brain were filled with the vision of a man, white-faced and trembling, comically, like a bug, clinging to the thrashing gaff. At six o'clock, when I served supper, going on deck to get the food from the galley, I saw Harrison still in the same position. The conversation at the table was of other things. Nobody seemed interested in a wantonly imperiled life. But, making an extra trip to the galley a little later, I was gladdened by the sight of Harrison staggering weakly from the rigging to the forecastle scuttle. He had finally summoned the courage to descend. Before closing this incident, I must give a scrap of conversation I had with Wolf Larsen in the cabin while I was washing the dishes. "'You were looking squeamish this afternoon,' he began. "'What was the matter?' I could see that he knew what had made me possibly as sick as Harrison, that he was trying to draw me, and I answered, it was because of the brutal treatment of that boy. He gave a short laugh. <laughs> like seasickness, I suppose. Some men are subject to it, and others are not. Not so, I objected. Just so, he went on. The earth is as full of brutality as the sea is full of emotion and some men are made sick by the one and some by the other. That's the only reason. But you, who make a mock of human life, don't you place any value upon it whatever? I demanded. Value? What value? He looked at me, and though his eyes were steady and motionless, there seemed a cynical smile in them. What kind of value? How do you measure it? Who values it? I do, I made answer. Then what is it worth to you? Another man's life, I mean. Come now, what is it worth? The value of life? How could I put a tangible value upon it? Somehow, I, who have always had expression, lacked expression when with Wolf Larsen. I have since determined that a part of it was due to the man's personality, but that the greater part was due to his totally different outlook. Unlike other materialists I had met, and with whom I had something in common to start on, I had nothing in common with him. Perhaps also it was the elemental simplicity of his mind that baffled me. He drove so directly to the core of the matter, divesting a question always of all superfluous details, and with such an air of finality that I seemed to find myself struggling in deep water with no footing under me value of life? How could I answer the question on the spur of the moment? The sacredness of life I had accepted as axiomatic. That it was intrinsically valuable was a truism I had never questioned. But when he challenged the truism, I was speechless. 
We were talking about this yesterday, he said. I held that life was a ferment, a yeasty something which devoured life that it might live, and that living was merely successful piggishness. Why, if there is anything in supply and demand, life is the cheapest thing in the world. There is only so much water, so much earth, so much air. But the life that is demanding to be born is limitless. Nature is a spendthrift. Look at the fish and their millions of eggs. For that matter, look at you and me. In our loins are the possibilities of millions of lives. Could we but find time and opportunity and utilize the last bit of every bit of the unborn life that is in us, we could become the fathers of nations and populate continents. Life, bah, it has no value. Of cheap things, it is the cheapest. Everywhere it goes begging. Nature spills it out with a lavish hand. Where there is room for one life, she sows a thousand lives, and its life eats life till the strongest and most piggish life is left. You have read Darwin, I said, but you read him misunderstandingly when you conclude that the struggle for existence sanctions your wanton destruction of life. He shrugged his shoulders. You know you only mean that in relation to human life, for of the flesh and the fowl and the fish you destroy as much as I or any other man. And human life is in no wise different, though you feel it is and think that you reason why it is. Why should I be parsimonious with this life which is so cheap and without value? There are more sailors than there are ships on the sea for them, more workers than there are factories or machines for them. Why, you who live on the land know that you house your poor people in the slums of cities and loose famine and pestilence upon them, and that there still remain more poor people, dying for want of a crust of bread and a bit of meat, which is life destroyed, than you know what to do with. Have you ever seen the London dockers fighting like wild beasts for a chance to work? He started for the companion stairs, but turned his head for a final word. Do you know the only value life has is what life puts upon itself? And it is, of course, overestimated, since it is of necessity prejudiced in its own favor. Take that man I had aloft. He held on as if he were a precious thing, a treasure beyond diamonds or rubies. To you? No. To me? Not at all. To himself? Yes. But I do not accept his estimate. He sadly overrates himself. There is plenty more life demanding to be born. Had he fallen and dripped his brains upon the deck like honey from the comb, there would have been no loss to the world. He was worth nothing to the world. The supply is too large. To himself only was he of value. And to show how fictitious even this value was, being dead, he is unconscious that he has lost himself. He alone rated himself beyond diamonds and rubies. Diamonds and rubies are gone, spread out on the deck to be washed away by a bucket of seawater, and he does not even know that the diamonds and rubies are gone. He does not lose anything, for with the loss of himself, he loses the knowledge of loss. Don't you see? And what have you to say? That you are at least consistent was all I could say, and I went on washing the dishes. End of chapter 6
Chapter 7 of The Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 7. At last, after three days of variable winds, we have caught the northeast trades. I came on deck after a good night's rest, in spite of my poor knee, to find the ghost foaming along wing and wing, and every sail drawing except the jibs, with a fresh breeze astern. Oh, the wonder of the great trade wind! All day we sailed, and all night, and the next day, and the next, day after day, the wind always astern and blowing steadily and strong. The schooner sailed herself. There was no pulling and hauling on sheets and tackles, no shifting of topsails, no work at all for the sailors to do, except to steer. At night, when the sun went down, the sheets were slackened. In the morning, when they yielded up the damp of the dew and relaxed, they were pulled tight again, and that was all. Ten knots, twelve knots, eleven knots, varying from time to time, is the speed we are making. And ever out of the northeast the brave wind blows, driving us on our course two hundred and fifty miles between the dawns. It saddens me, and it gladdens me, the gait with which we are leaving San Francisco behind, and with which we are foaming down upon the tropics. Each day grows perceptibly warmer. In the second dog-watch the sailors come on deck, stripped, and heap buckets of water upon one another from overside. Flying fish are beginning to be seen, and during the night the watch above scrambles over the deck in pursuit of those that fall aboard. In the morning, Thomas Mugridge, being duly bribed, the galley is pleasantly a reek with the odor of their frying, while dolphin meat is served for and aft on such occasions as Johnson catches the blazing beauties from the bowsprit end. Johnson seems to spend all his spare time there, or aloft at the cross-trees, watching the ghost cleaving the water under press of sail. There is passion, adoration in his eyes, and he goes about in a sort of trance, gazing in ecstasy at the swelling sails, the foaming wake, and the heave and the run of her over the liquid mountains that are moving with us in stately procession. The days and nights are all a wonder and a wild delight, and though I have little time from my dreary work, I steal odd moments to gaze and gaze at the unending glory of what I never dreamed the world possessed. Above, the sky is stainless blue, blue as the sea itself, which under the forefoot is of the color and sheen of azure satin. All around the horizon are pale, fleecy clouds, never changing, never moving, like a silver setting for the flawless turquoise sky. I do not forget one night, when I should have been asleep, of lying on the forecastle head and gazing down at the spectral ripple of foam thrust aside by the ghost's forefoot. It sounded like the gurgling of a brook over mossy stones in some quiet dell, and the crooning song of it lured me away and out of myself, till I was no longer Hump the Cabin Boy, nor Van Waden, 
the man who had dreamed away thirty-five years among books. But a voice behind me, the unmistakable voice of Wolf Larsen, strong with the invincible certitude of the man, and mellow with appreciation of the words he was quoting, aroused me. Oh, the blazing tropic night, when the wakes a wealth of light that holds the hot sky tame, and the steady forefoot snores through the planet-powdered floors, where the scared whale flukes in flame. Her plates are scarred by the sun, dear lass, and her ropes are taut with the dew, for we're booming down on the old trail, our own trail, the out trail, we're sagging south on the long trail, the trail that is always new. Eh, hump? How's it strike him? he asked, after the due pause which words and setting demanded. I looked into his face. It was aglow with light, as the sea itself, and the eyes were flashing in the starshine. It strikes me as remarkable, to say the least, that you should show enthusiasm, I answered coldly. Why, man, it's living, it's life, he cried. Which is a cheap thing and without value? I flung his words at him. He laughed, and it was the first time I had heard honest mirth in his voice. Ah, I cannot get you to understand, cannot drive it into your head, what a thing this life is. Of course, life is valueless except to itself. And I can tell you that my life is pretty valuable just now, to myself. It is beyond price which you will acknowledge is a terrific overrating, but which I cannot help, for it is the life that's in me that makes the rating. He appeared waiting for the words with which to express the thought that was in him, and finally went on. Do you know, I am filled with a strange uplift. I feel as if time were echoing through me, as though all powers were mine. I know truth divine good from evil, right from wrong. My vision is clear and far. I could almost believe in God, but... And his voice changed, and the light went out of his face. What is this condition in which I find myself? This joy of living, this exaltation of life, this inspiration, I may well call it, is what comes when there is nothing wrong with one's digestion when his stomach is in trim and his appetite has an edge, and all goes well. It is the bribe for living, the champagne of the blood, the effervescence of the ferment, that makes some men think holy thoughts and other men to see God, or to create him when they cannot see him. That is all, the drunkenness of life, the stirring and crawling of the yeast, the babbling of the life that is insane with consciousness that is alive. And, bah! Tomorrow I shall pay for it as the drunkard pays. I shall know that I must die, at sea most likely, cease crawling of myself to be all a crawl with the corruption of the sea, to be fed upon, to be carrion, 
to yield up all the strength and movement of my muscles that it may become strength and movement in fin and scale and the guts of fishes bah and bah again the champagne is already flat the sparkle and bubble has gone out and it is a tasteless drink he left me as suddenly as he had come springing to the deck with the weight and softness of a tiger the ghost ploughed on her way i noted the gurgling forefoot was very like a snore and as i listened to it the effect of wolf larsen's swift rush from sublime exultation to despair slowly left me then some deep water sailor from the waist of the ship lifted a rich tenor voice in the song of the trade wind oh i am the wind the seamen love i am steady and strong and true they follow my track by the clouds above or the fathomless tropic blue through daylight and dark i follow the bark i keep like a hound on her trail i am strongest at noon yet under the moon i stiffen the bunt of her sail End of chapter 7chapter 8 of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter 8 sometimes i think wolf larsen mad or half mad at least one of his strange moods and vagaries at other times i take him for a great man a genius who has never arrived and finally i am convinced that he is the perfect type of the primitive man born a thousand years or generations too late and an anachronism in this culminating century of civilization he is certainly an individualist of the most pronounced type not only that but he is very lonely there is no congeniality between him and the rest of the men aboard ship his tremendous virility and mental strength wall him apart they are more like children to him even the hunters and as children he treats them descending perforce to their level and playing with them as a man plays with puppies or else he probes them with the cruel hand of a vivisectionist groping about in their mental processes and examining their souls as though to see of what soul stuff is made i have seen him a score of times at table insulting this hunter or that with cool and level eyes and withal a certain air of interest pondering their actions or replies or petty rages with a curiosity almost laughable to me who stood onlooker and who understood concerning his own rages i am convinced that they are not real that they are sometimes experiments but that in the main they are the habits of a pose or attitude he has seen fit to take towards his fellow men i know with the possible exception of the incident of the dead mate that i have not seen him really angry nor do i wish ever to see him in a genuine rage when all the force of him is called into play 
while on the question of vagaries i shall tell what befell thomas mugridge in the cabin and at the same time complete an incident upon which i have already touched once or twice the twelve o'clock dinner was over one day and i had finished putting the cabin in order when wolf larsen and thomas mugridge descended the companion stairs though the cook had a cubby-hole of a stateroom opening off from the cabin in the cabin itself he had never dared to linger or to be seen and he flitted to and fro once or twice a day a timid spectre so you know how to play nap wolf larsen was saying in a pleased sort of voice i might have guessed an englishman would know i learned it myself in english ships thomas mugridge was beside himself a blithering imbecile so pleased was he at chumming thus with the captain the little airs he put on and the painful striving to assume the easy carriage of a man born to a dignified place in life would have been sickening had they not been ludicrous he quite ignored my presence though i credited him with being simply unable to see me his pale wishy-washy eyes were swimming like lazy summer seas though what blissful visions they beheld were beyond my imagination get the cards hump wolf larsen ordered as they took seats at the table and bring out the cigars and the whiskey you'll find in my berth i returned with the articles in time to hear the cockney hinting broadly that there was a mystery about him that he might be a gentleman's son gone wrong or something or other also that he was a remittance man and was paid to keep away from england pied handsomely sir was the way he put it pied handsomely to sling my hook and keep slinging i had brought the customary liquor glasses but wolf larsen frowned shook his head and signalled with his hands for me to bring the tumblers these he filled two-thirds full with undiluted whiskey a gentleman's drink quoth thomas mugridge and they clinked their glasses to the glorious game of nap lighted cigars and fell to shuffling and dealing the cards they played for money they increased the amounts of the bets they drank whiskey they drank it neat and i fetched more I do not know whether Wolf Larsen cheated or not, a thing he was thoroughly capable of doing, but he won steadily. The cook made repeated journeys to his bunk for money. Each time he performed the journey with greater swagger, but he never brought more than a few dollars at a time. He grew maudlin, familiar, could hardly see the cards or sit upright. As a preliminary to another journey to his bunk, he hooked Wolf Larsen's buttonhole with a greasy forefinger and vacuously proclaimed and reiterated, I got money, I got money, I tell you, and I'm a gentleman's son. Wolf Larsen was unaffected by the drink, yet he drank glass for glass, and if anything, his glasses were fuller. There was no change in him. He did not appear even amused at the other's antics. In the end, with loud protestations that he could lose like a gentleman, the cook's last money was staked on the game, and lost. 
whereupon he leaned his head on his hands and wept. Wolf Larsen looked curiously at him, as though about to probe and vivisect him, then changed his mind as from the foregone conclusion that there was nothing there to probe. Hump, he said to me, elaborately polite, kindly take Mr. Mugridge's arm and help him up on deck. He's not feeling very well. And tell Johnson to douse him with a few buckets of salt water, he added, in a lower tone from my earlock. I left Mr. Mugridge on deck in the hands of a couple of grinning sailors who had been told off for the purpose. Mr. Mugridge was sleepily sputtering that he was a gentleman's son, but as I descended the companion stairs to clear the table, I heard him shriek as the first bucket of water struck him. Wolf Arson was counting his winnings. One hundred and eighty-five dollars even, he said aloud, just as I thought. That beggar came aboard without a cent. And what you have won is mine, sir, I said boldly. He favored me with a quizzical smile. Hump, I have studied some grammar in my time and I think your tenses are tangled. Was mine, you should have said, not is mine. It is a question not of grammar, but of ethics, I answered. There was possibly a minute before he spoke. You know, Hump, he said, with a slow seriousness which had in it an indefinable strain of sadness, that this is the first time I have heard the word ethics in the mouth of a man. You and I are the only men on this ship who know its meaning. At one time in my life, he continued, after another pause, I dreamed that I might some day talk with men who use such language, that I might lift myself out of the place in life in which I had been born and hold conversation and mingle with men who talked about just such things as ethics. And this is the first time I have ever heard the word pronounced. Which is all, by the way, for you are wrong. It is a question neither of grammar nor ethics, but of fact. I understand, I said. The fact is that you have the money. His face brightened. He seemed pleased at my perspicacity. But it is avoiding the real question, I continued, which is one of right. Ah, he remarked, with a wry pucker of his mouth, I say you still believe in such things as right and wrong. But don't you? At all? I demanded. Not the least bit. Might is right, and that is all there is to it. Weakness is wrong, which is a very poor way of saying that it is good for oneself to be strong and evil for oneself to be weak. Or, better yet, it is pleasurable to be strong because of the profits, painful to be weak because of the penalties. Just now, the possession of this money is a pleasurable thing. It is good for one to possess it. Being able to possess it, I wrong myself and the life that is in me if I give it to you and forego the pleasure of possessing it. But you wrong me by withholding it, I objected. Not at all. One man cannot wrong another man 
he can only wrong himself as i see it i do wrong always when i consider the interests of others don't you see how can two particles of the yeast wrong each other by striving to devour each other it is their inborn heritage to strive to devour and to strive not to be devoured when they depart from this they sin don't you believe in altruism i asked he received the word as if it had a familiar ring though he pondered it thoughtfully let me see uh, it means something about cooperation doesn't it well in a way there has come to be a sort of connection i answered unsurprised by this time at such gaps in his vocabulary which like his knowledge was the acquirement of a self-read self-educated man whom no one had directed in his studies and who had thought much and talked little or not at all an altruistic act is an act performed for the welfare of others it is unselfish as opposed to an act performed for self which is selfish he nodded his head oh yes i remember it now i ran across it in spencer spencer i cried have you read him not very much was his confession i understood quite a good deal of first principles but his biology took the wind out of my sails and his psychology left me butting around in the doldrums for many a day i honestly could not understand what he was driving I put it down to mental deficiency on my part, but since then I have decided that it was for want of preparation. I had no proper basis. Only Spencer and myself know how hard I hammered, but I did get something out of his data of ethics. That's where I ran across altruism, and I remember now how it was used. I wondered what this man could have got from such a work spencer i remembered enough to know that altruism was imperative to his ideal of highest conduct wolf larsen evidently had sifted the great philosopher's teachings rejecting and selecting according to his needs and desires what else did you run across i asked his brows drew in slightly with the mental effort of suitably phrasing thoughts which he had never before put into speech i felt an elation of spirit i was groping into his soul stuff as he made a practice of groping in the soul stuff of others i was exploring virgin territory a strange a terribly strange region was unrolling itself before my eyes in as few words as possible he began spencer puts it something like this first a man must act for his own benefit to do this is to be moral and good next he must act for the benefit of his children and third he must act for the benefit of his race and the highest finest right conduct i interjected is that which benefits at the same time the man his children and his race i wouldn't stand for that he replied couldn't see the necessity for it nor the common sense i cut out the race and the children I would sacrifice nothing for them. It's just so much slush and sentiment. And you must see it yourself, at least for one who does not believe in eternal life. With immortality before me, 
altruism would be a paying business proposition. I might elevate my soul to all kinds of altitudes, but with nothing eternal before me but death, given for a brief spell this yeasty crawling and squirming which is called life, why, it would be immoral for me to perform any act that was a sacrifice. Any sacrifice that makes me lose one crawl or squirm is foolish. And not only foolish, for it is a wrong against myself, and a wicked thing. I must not lose one crawl or squirm if I am to get the most out of the ferment. Nor will the eternal movelessness that is coming to me be made easier or harder by the sacrifices or selfishnesses of the time when I was yeasty in a crawl. Then you are an individualist, a materialist, and logically a hedonist. Big words, he smiled. But what is a hedonist? He nodded agreement when I had given the definition. And you are also, I continued, a man one could not trust in the least thing where it was possible for a selfish interest to intervene. Now you're beginning to understand, he said, brightening. You are a man utterly without what the world calls morals. That's it. A man of whom to be always afraid. That's the way to put it. As one is afraid of a snake or a tiger or a shark. Now you know me, he said, and you know me as I am generally known. Other men call me Wolf. You are a sort of monster, I added audaciously. A Caliban who has pondered said of us, and who acts as you act in idle moments by whim and fancy. His brow clouded at the illusion. He did not understand, and I quickly learned that he did not know the poem. I'm just reading Browning, he confessed, and it's pretty tough. I haven't got very far along, and, as it is, I have about lost my bearings. Not to be tiresome, I shall say that I fetched the book from his stateroom and read Caliban aloud. He was delighted. It was a primitive mode of reasoning and of looking at things that he understood thoroughly. He interrupted again and again with comment and criticism. When I finished, he had me read it over a second time and a third. We fell into discussion. Philosophy, science, evolution, religion. He betrayed the inaccuracies of the self-read man, and, it must be granted, the sureness and directness of the primitive mind. The very simplicity of his reasoning was its strength, and his materialism was far more compelling than the subtly complex materialism of Charlie Furuseth. Not that I, a confirmed and, as Furuseth phrased it, a temperamental idealist, was to be compelled, but that Wolf Larsen stormed the last strongholds of my faith with a vigor that received respect while not accorded conviction. Time passed. Supper was at hand and the table not laid. I became restless and anxious, and when Thomas Mugridge glared down the companionway, sick and angry of countenance i prepared to go about my duties but wolf larsen cried out to him cookie you've got to hustle tonight i'm busy with hump and you'll do the best you can without him 
and again the unprecedented was established that night i sat at table with the captain and the hunters while thomas mugridge waited on us and washed the dishes afterward a whim a caliban mood of wolf larsen's and one i foresaw would bring me trouble in the meantime we talked and talked much to the disgust of the hunters who could not understand a word end of chapter eight chapter nine of the sea wolf this librivox recording is in the public domain the sea wolf by jack london chapter nine three days of rest three blessed days of rest are what i had with wolf larsen eating at the captain table and doing nothing but discuss life literature and the universe the while thomas mugridge fumed and raged and did my work as well as his own watch out for squalls is all i can say to you was lewis's warning given during a spare half hour on deck while wolf larsen was engaged in straightening out a row among the hunters you can't tell what'll be happening lewis went on in response to my query for more definite information the man's as contrary as our currents or water currents you can never guess the ways of him tis just as you think and you know him and are making a favourable slant along him that he whirls around dead ahead and comes howling down upon you and a ripping all of your fine weather sails to rags so i was not altogether surprised when the squall foretold by lewis smote me we had been having a heated discussion upon life of course and grown overbold i was passing stiff strictures upon wolf larsen and the life of wolf larsen in fact i was vivisecting him and turning over his soul stuff as keenly and thoroughly as it was his custom to do it to others it may be a weakness of mine that i have an incisive way of speech but i threw all restraint to the winds and cut and slashed until the whole man of him was snarling the dark sunbronze of his face went black with wrath his eyes were ablaze there was no clearness or sanity in him nothing but the terrific rage of a madman it was the wolf in him that i saw and a mad wolf at that he sprang from me with a half-roar gripping my arm i had steeled myself to brazen it out though i was trembling inwardly but the enormous strength of the man was too much for my fortitude he had gripped me by the biceps with his single hand and when that grip tightened i wilted and shrieked aloud my feet went out from under me i simply could not stand upright and endure the agony the muscles refused their duty the pain was too great my biceps were being crushed to a pulp he seemed to recover himself for a lucid gleam came into his eyes and he relaxed his hold with a short laugh that was more like a growl i fell to the floor feeling very faint while he sat down lighted a cigar and watched me as a cat watches a mouse 
as i writhed about i could see in his eyes that curiosity i had so often noted that wonder and perplexity that questing that everlasting query of his as to what it was all about i finally crawled to my feet and ascended the companion stairs fair weather was over and there was nothing left but to return to the galley my left arm was numb as though paralyzed and days passed before i could use it while weeks went by before the last stiffness and pain went out of it and he had done nothing but put his hand upon my arm and squeeze there had been no wrenching or jerking he had just closed his hand with a steady pressure what he might have done i did not fully realize till next day when he put his head into the galley and as a sign of renewed friendliness asked me how my arm was getting on it might have been worse he smiled i was peeling potatoes he picked one up from the pan it was fair-sized firm and unpeeled he closed his hand upon it squeezed and the potato squirted out between his fingers in mushy streams the pulpy remnant he dropped back into the pan and turned away and i had a sharp vision of how it might have fared with me had the monster put his real strength upon me but the three days rest was good in spite of it all for it had given my knee the very chance it needed it felt much better the swelling had materially decreased and the cap seemed descending into its proper place also the three days rest brought the trouble i had foreseen it was plainly thomas muggridge's intention to make me pay for those three days he treated me vilely cursed me continually and heaped his own work upon me he even ventured to raise his fist to me but i was becoming animal-like myself and i snarled in his face so terribly that it must have frightened him back it is no pleasant picture i can conjure up of myself humphrey van waden in that noisome ship's galley crouched in a corner over my task my face raised to the face of the creature about to strike me my lips lifted and snarling like a dog's my eyes gleaming with fear and helplessness and the courage that comes of fear and helplessness i do not like the picture it reminds me too strongly of a rat in a trap i do not care to think of it but it was elective for the threatened blow did not descend thomas muggridge backed away glaring as hatefully and viciously as i glared a pair of beasts is what we were penned together and showing our teeth he was a coward afraid to strike me because i had not quailed sufficiently in advance so he chose a new way to intimidate me there was only one galley knife that as a knife amounted to anything this through many years of service and wear had acquired a long lean blade it was unusually cruel looking and at first i had shuddered every time i used it the cook borrowed a stone from johansen and proceeded to sharpen the knife he did it with great ostentation glancing significantly at me the while he wetted it up and down all day long every odd moment he could find he had the knife and stone out and was wetting away the steel acquired a razor edge 
He tried it with the ball of his thumb or across the nail. He shaved hairs from the back of his hand, glanced along the edge with microscopic acuteness, and found, or feigned that he found, always, a slight inequality in its edge somewhere. Then he would put it on the stone again and wet, 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 till I could have laughed aloud. It was so very ludicrous. It was also serious, for I learned that he was capable of using it, that under all his cowardice there was a courage of cowardice like mine that would impel him to do the very thing his whole nature protested against doing and was afraid of doing. Cookie sharpening his knife for hump was being whispered about among the sailors, and some of them twitted him about it. This he took in good part, and was really pleased, nodding his head with direful foreknowledge and mystery, until George Leach, the erstwhile cabin boy, ventured some rough pleasantry on the subject. Now it happened that Leach was one of the sailors told off to douse Mugridge after his game of cards with the captain. Leach had evidently done his task with a thoroughness that Mugridge had not forgiven. For words followed, and evil names involving smirched ancestress. Mugridge menaced with the knife he was sharpening for me. Leech laughed and hurled more of his Telegraph Hill Billingsgate, and before either he or I knew what had happened, his right arm had been ripped open from elbow to wrist by a quick slash of the knife. The cook backed away, a fiendish expression on his face. The knife held before him in a position of defense. But Leech took it quite calmly, though blood was spouting upon the deck as generously as water from a fountain. I'm going to get to you, Cookie, he said, and I'll get you hard, and I won't be in no hurry about it. You'll be without that knife when I come for you. So saying, he turned and walked quietly forward. Mugridge's face was livid with fear at what he had done and at what he might expect sooner or later from the man he had stabbed. But his demeanor toward me was more ferocious than ever. In spite of his fear at the reckoning he must expect to pay for what he had done, he could see that it had been an object lesson to me, and he became more domineering and exultant. Also, there was a lust in him, akin to madness, which had come with sight of the blood he had drawn. He was beginning to see red in whatever direction he looked. The psychology of it sadly tangled, and yet I could read the workings of his mind as clearly as though it were a printed book. Several days went by, the ghost still foaming down the trades, and I could swear I saw madness growing in Thomas Mugridge's eyes and I confess that I became afraid, very much afraid. Wet, wet, wet. It went all day long. The look in his eyes as he felt the keen edge and glared at me was positively carnivorous. I was afraid to turn my shoulder to him, and when I left the galley I went out backwards, to the amusement of the sailors and hunters, who made a point of gathering in groups to witness my exit. The strain was too great. I sometimes thought my mind would give way under it. A meat thing on this ship of madmen and brutes. Every hour, every minute of my existence was in jeopardy. 
I was a human soul in distress, and yet no soul, for or aft, betrayed sufficient sympathy to come to my aid. At times I thought of throwing myself on the mercy of Wolf Larsen, but the vision of the mocking devil in his eyes that questions life and sneered at it would come strong upon me and compel me to refrain. At other times I seriously contemplated suicide, and the whole force of my hopeful philosophy was required to keep me from going over the side in the darkness of night. Several times Wolf Larsen tried to inveigle me into discussion, but I gave him short answers and eluded him. Finally, he commanded me to resume my seat at the captain table for a time and let the cook do my work. Then I spoke frankly, telling him what I was enduring from Thomas Mugridge because of the three days of favoritism which had been shown me. Wolf Larsen regarded me with smiling eyes. So you're afraid, eh? he sneered. Yes, I said, defiantly and honestly. I am afraid. That's the way with you fellows, he cried, half angrily, sentimentalizing about your immortal souls and afraid to die. At sight of a sharp knife and a cowardly cockney, the clinging of life to life overcomes all your fond foolishness. Why, my dear fellow, you will live forever. You are a god, and god cannot be killed. Cookie cannot hurt you. You are sure of your resurrection. What's there to be afraid of? You have eternal life before you. You are a millionaire in immortality and a millionaire whose fortune cannot be lost, whose fortune is less perishable than the stars, and as lasting as space or time. It is impossible for you to diminish your principle. Immortality is a thing without beginning or end. Eternity is eternity, and though you die here and now, you will go on living somewhere else and hereafter. And it is all very beautiful, this shaking off of the flesh and soaring of the imprisoned spirit. Cookie cannot hurt you. It can only give you a boost on the path you eternally must tread. Or, if you do not wish to be boosted just yet, why not boost Cookie? According to your ideas, he too must be an immortal millionaire. You cannot bankrupt him. His paper will always circulate at par. You cannot diminish the length of his living by killing him, for he is without beginning or end. He's bound to go on living somewhere, somehow. Then boost him, stick a knife in him, and let his spirit free. As it is, it's in a nasty prison, and you'll do him only a kindness by breaking down the door. And who knows? It may be a very beautiful spirit that will go soaring up into the blue from that ugly carcass. Boost him along, and I'll promote you to his place. And he's getting $45 a month. It was plain that I could look for no help or mercy from Wolf Larsen. Whatever was to be done, I must do for myself. And out of the courage of fear, I evolved the plan of fighting Thomas Mugridge with his own weapons. I borrowed a whetstone from Johansen. Lewis, the boat steerer, had already begged me for condensed milk and sugar. The lazarette, where such delicacies were stored, was situated beneath the cabin floor. Watching my chance, I stole five cans of the milk 
and that night, when it was Lewis's watch on deck, I traded them with him for a dirk as lean and cruel-looking as Thomas Mugridge's vegetable knife. It was rusty and dull, but I turned the grindstone while Lewis gave it an edge. I slept more soundly than usual that night. Next morning after breakfast, Thomas Mugridge began his wet, wet, wet. I glanced warily at him, for I was on my knees, taking the ashes from the stove. When I returned from throwing them overside, he was talking to Harrison, whose honest yokel's face was filled with fascination and wonder. Yes, Mugridge was saying, and what does his worship do? But give me two years in Reading. But bloy me if I cared. The other mug was fixed plenty. Should have seen him. Knife, just like this. I stuck it in, like into soft butter. And away he squealed was better in a two-penny gaff. He shot a glance in my direction, to see if I was taking it in, and went on. I didn't mean it, Tommy. He was sniffling. So help me God, I didn't mean it. I'll fix your blood he will right, I says, and kept right after him. I come in ribbons, that's what I did, and he is squealing all the time. Once he got his hand on a knife and tried to hold it, had his fingers around it, but I pulled it true, cut into the bone. Oh, he was a sight, I can tell you. A call from the mate interrupted the gory narrative, and Harrison went aft. Mugridge sat down on the raised threshold to the galley and went on with his knife sharpening. I put the shovel away and calmly sat down on the coal box facing him. He favored me with a vicious stare. Still calmly, though my heart was going pit-a-pat, I pulled out Lewis's dirk and began to wet it on the stone. I had looked for almost any sort of explosion on the Cockney's part, but to my surprise he did not appear aware of what I was doing. He went on wetting his knife. So did I. And for two hours we sat there face to face, wet, 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 till the news of it spread abroad, and half the ship's company was crowding the galley doors to see the sight. Encouragement and advice were freely tendered, and Jack Horner, the quiet, self-spoken hunter who looked as though he would not harm a mouse, advised me to leave the ribs alone and to thrust upward for the abdomen, at the same time giving what he called the Spanish twist to the knife. Leech, his bandaged arm prominently to the fore, begged me to leave a few remnants of the cook for him, and Wolf Larsen paused once or twice at the break of the poop to glance curiously at what must have been to him a stirring and crawling of the yeasty thing he knew as life. And I make free to say that for the time being life assumed the same sordid values to me. There was nothing pretty about it, nothing divine. Only two cowardly moving things that sat wetting steel upon stone and a group of other moving things, cowardly and otherwise, that looked on. Half of them, I am sure, were anxious to see us shedding each other's blood. It would have been entertainment, and I do not think there was one who would have interfered had we closed in a death struggle. On the other hand, the whole thing was laughable and childish. Wet, wet, wet. Humphrey Van Waden, 
sharpening his knife in his ship's galley and trying its edge with his thumb of all situations this was the most inconceivable i know that my own kind could not have believed it possible i had not been called sissy van waden all my days without reason and that sissy van waden should be capable of doing this thing was a revelation to humphrey van waden who knew not whether to be exultant or ashamed but nothing happened at the end of two hours thomas mugridge put away knife and stone and held out his hand what's the good of my can only show ourselves for them mugs he demanded they don't love us and bloody well glad they'd be a seein us cuttin our throats you're not arf bad ump you got spunk as your yank say and i like you in a way so come on shike coward that i might be i was less a coward than he it was a distinct victory i had gained and i refused to forego any of it by shaking his detestable hand all right he said pridelessly tyker to leave it i like you none the less for it and to save his face he turned fiercely upon the onlookers get out of my galley doors you bloomin' swabs this command was reinforced by a steaming kettle of water and at sight of it the sailors scrambled out of the way this was a sort of victory for thomas mugridge and enabled him to accept more gracefully the defeat i had given him though of course he was too discreet to attempt to drive the hunters away i see cookies finish i heard smoke say to horner you bet was the reply hump runs the galley from now on and cookie pulls in his horns mugridge heard and shot a swift glance at me but i gave no sign that the conversation had reached me i had not thought my victory was so far-reaching and complete but i resolved to let go nothing i had gained as the days went by smoke's prophecy was verified the cockney became more humble and slavish to me than even to wolf larsen i mistered him and served him no longer washed no more greasy pots and peeled no more potatoes i did my own work and my own work only and when and in what fashion i saw fit also i carried the dirk in a sheath at my hip sailor fashion and maintained towards thomas mugridge a constant attitude which was composed of equal parts of domineering insult and contempt End of chapter nine Chapter Ten of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Ten. My intimacy with Wolf Larsen increases, if by intimacy may be denoted those relations which exist between master and man, or better yet, between king and jester. I am to him no more than a toy and he values me no more than a child values a toy my function is to amuse and so long as i amuse all goes well but let him become bored or let him have one of his black moods come upon him and at once i am relegated from cabin table to galley 
while at the same time I am fortunate to escape with my life and a whole body. The loneliness of the man is slowly being borne in upon me. There is not a man aboard but hates or fears him, nor is there a man whom he does not despise. He seems consuming with the tremendous power that is in him, and that seems never to have found adequate expression in works. He is as Lucifer would be were that proud spirit banished to a society of soulless, Tomlinsonian ghosts. This loneliness is bad enough in itself, but to make it worse, he is oppressed by the primal melancholy of the race. Knowing him, I review the old Scandinavian myths with clearer understanding. The white-skinned, fair-haired savages who created that terrible pantheon were of the same fiber as he. The frivolity of the laughter-loving Latins is no part of him. When he laughs, it is from a humor that is nothing else than ferocious. But he laughs rarely. He is too often sad, and it is a sadness as deep-reaching as the roots of the race. It is the race heritage, the sadness which has made the race sober-minded, clean-lived, and fanatically moral, and which, in this latter connection, has culminated among the English in the Reformed Church and Mrs. Grundy. In point of fact, the chief vent to this primal melancholy has been religion in its more agonizing forms. But the compensations of such religion are denied Wolf Larsen. His brutal materialism will not permit it. So, when his blue moods come on, nothing remains for him but to be devilish. Were he not so terrible a man, I could sometimes feel sorry for him, as instance three mornings ago when I went into his stateroom to fill his water-bottle, and came unexpectedly upon him. He did not see me. His head was buried in his hands, and his shoulders were heaving convulsively, as with sobs. He seemed torn by some mighty grief. As I softly withdrew, I could hear him groaning, God! 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 Not that he was calling upon God, it was a mere expletive, but it came from his soul. At dinner he asked the hunters for a remedy for headache, and by evening, strong man that he was, he was half blind and reeling about the cabin. "'I've never been sick in my life, Hump,' he said as I guided him to his room, "'nor did I ever have a headache.' except the time my head was healing after having been laid open for six inches by a capstan bar. For three days the blinding headache lasted, and he suffered as wild animals suffer, as it seemed the way on ship to suffer, without sympathy, utterly alone. This morning, however, on entering his stateroom to make the bed and put things in order, I found him well and hard at work table and bunk were littered with designs and calculations. On a large transparent sheet, compass and square in hand, he was copying what appeared to be a scale of some sort or other. "'Hello, Hump,' he greeted me genially. "'I am just finishing the finishing touches. Want to see it work?' "'But what is it?' I asked. 
a labor-saving device for mariners, navigation reduced to kindergarten simplicity, he answered gaily. From today, a child will be able to navigate a ship. No more long-winded calculations. All you need is one star in the sky on a dirty night to know instantly where you are. Look, I placed a transparent scale on this star map revolving the scale on the North Pole. On the scale, I've worked out the circles of altitude and the lines of bearing. All I do is put it on a star, revolve the scale till it is opposite those figures on the map underneath, and presto, there you are, the ship's precise location. There was a ring of triumph in his voice, and his eyes, clear blue this morning as the sea, were sparkling with light. You must be well up in mathematics, I said. Where did you go to school? Never saw the inside of one. Worse luck, was the answer. I had to dig it out for myself. And why do you think I have made this thing? He demanded abruptly. Dreaming to leave footprints on the sands of time? He laughed one of his terrible mocking laughs. Ha ha ha! Not at all. To get it patented. To make money from it. To revel in piggishness with all night in, while other men do the work. That's my purpose. Also, I have enjoyed working it out. The creative joy, I murmured. I guess that's what it ought to be called, which is another way of expressing the joy of life in that it is alive. The triumph of movement over matter, of the quick over the dead, the pride of the yeast, because it is yeast and crawls. I threw up my hands with helpless disapproval at his inveterate materialism, and went about making the bed. He continued copying lines and figures upon the transparent scale. It was a task requiring the utmost nicety and precision, and I could not but admire the way he tempered his strength to the fineness and delicacy of the need. When I had finished the bed, I caught myself looking at him in a fascinated sort of way. He was certainly a handsome man, beautiful in the masculine sense. And again, with never-failing wonder, I remarked the total lack of viciousness or wickedness or sinfulness in his face. It was the face, I am convinced, of a man who did no wrong. And by this I do not wish to be misunderstood. What I mean is that it was the face of a man who either did nothing contrary to the dictates of his conscience, or who had no conscience. I am inclined to the latter way of accounting for it. It was a magnificent atavism, a man so purely primitive that he was of the type that came into the world before the development of the moral nature. He was not immoral, but merely unmoral. As I have said, in the masculine sense his was a beautiful face, smooth-shaven, every line was distinct, and it was cut as clear and sharp as a cameo. While sea and sun had tanned the naturally fair skin to a dark bronze which bespoke struggle and battle, and added both to his savagery and his beauty. The lips were full, yet possessed of the firmness, almost harshness, which is characteristic of thin lips. The set of his mouth, his chin, his jaw, was likewise firm or harsh, with all the fierceness and indomitableness of the male. The nose also, 
it was the nose of a being born to conquer and command it just hinted of the eagle beak it might have been grecian it might have been roman only it was a shade too massive for the one a shade too delicate for the other and while the whole face was the incarnation of fierceness and strength the primal melancholy from which he suffered seemed to greaten the lines of mouth and eye and brow seemed to give a largeness and completeness which otherwise the face would have lacked and so i caught myself standing idly and studying him i cannot say how greatly the man had come to interest me who was he what was he how had he happened to be all power seemed his all potentialities why then was he no more than the obscure master of a seal-hunting schooner with a reputation for frightful brutality amongst the men who hunted seals my curiosity burst from me in a flood of speech why is it that you have not done great things in this world with the power that is yours you might have risen to any height unpossessed of conscience or moral instinct you might have mastered the world broken it to your hand and yet here you are at the top of your life where diminishing and dying begin living an obscure and sordid existence hunting sea animals for the satisfaction of woman's vanity and love of decoration reveling in a piggishness to use your own words which is anything and everything except splendid why with all that wonderful strength have you not done something there was nothing to stop you nothing that could stop you what was wrong did you lack ambition did you fall under temptation what was the matter what was the matter he had lifted his eyes to me at the commencement of my outburst and followed me complacently until i had done and stood before him breathless and dismayed he waited a moment as though seeking where to begin and then said Hump! do you know the parable of the sower who went forth to sow if you will remember some of the seed fell upon stony places where there was not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth and when the sun was up they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away and some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them well i said well he queried half petulantly it was not well i was one of those seeds he dropped his head to the scale and resumed the copying i finished my work and had opened the door to leave when he spoke to me hump if you will look on the west coast of the map of norway you will see an indentation called romsdal fjord i was born within a hundred miles of that stretch of water but i was not born norwegian i am a dane my father and mother were danes and how they ever came to that bleak bite of land on the west coast i do not know i never heard outside of that there is nothing mysterious they were poor people and unlettered they came of generations of poor unlettered people peasants of the sea who sowed their sons on the waves as has been their custom since time began there is no more to tell but there is i objected it is still obscure to me 
What can I tell you? He demanded, with a recrudescence of fierceness. Of the meagerness of a child's life? Of fish diet and coarse living? Of going out with the boats from the time I could crawl? Of my brothers, who went away one by one to the deep-sea farming and never came back? Of myself, unable to read or write, cabin boy at the mature age of ten on the coastwise old country ships? Of the rough fare and rougher usage, where kicks and blows were bed and breakfast, and took the place of speech, and fear and hatred and pain were my only sole experiences? I do not care to remember. A madness comes up in my brain even now as I think of it. But there were coastwise skippers I would have returned and killed when a man's strength came to me. Only the lines of my life were cast at the time in other places. I did return not long ago, but unfortunately the skippers were dead, all but one, a mate in the old days, a skipper when I met him, and when I left him, a cripple who would never walk again. But you who read Spencer and Darwin and have never seen the inside of a school, how did you learn to read and write? I queried. In the English merchant service, cabin boy at twelve, ship's boy at fourteen, ordinary seaman at sixteen, able seaman at seventeen, and cock of the foxhole, infinite ambition and infinite loneliness, receiving neither help nor sympathy. I did it all for myself navigation, mathematics, science, literature, and what not. And of what use has it been? master and owner of a ship at the top of my life as you say when i am beginning to diminish and die paltry isn't it and when the sun was up i was scorched and because i had no root i withered away but history tells of slaves who rose to the purple i chided and history tells of opportunities that came to the slaves who rose to the purple he answered grimly no man makes opportunity. All the great men ever did was to know it when it came to them. The Corsican knew. I have dreamed as greatly as the Corsican. I should have known the opportunity, but it never came. The thorns sprung up and choked me. And, Hump, I can tell you that you know more about me than any living man except my own brother. And what is he? And where is he? Master of the steamship Macedonia, seal hunter, was the answer. We will meet him most probably on the Japan coast. Men call him Death Larson. Death Larson, I involuntarily cried. Is he like you? Hardly. He is a lump of an animal without any head. He has all my, my... Brutishness, I suggested. Yes, thank you for the word. All my brutishness, but he can scarcely read or write. And he has never philosophized on life, I added. No, Wolf Larsen answered, with an indescribable air of sadness. And he is all the happier for leaving life alone. He is too busy living it to think about it. My mistake was in never opening the books. End of chapter 10 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.